0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Kate Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Chris McCord, the creator and maintainer of the Phoenix Framework, shared an impressive peek into an upcoming feature of the LiveView uploads. And it's going to be including things like interactive file selection, file progress, concurrent uploads, drag and drop direct to cloud support, which is like pushing directly to S3 and more. I'm really excited about that one. Uploads with Live View has been a topic for some time and just some of the challenges around it. So I'm really excited about this one because like with our work, we do a lot of uploads too.
1: There was even a conference talk at ElixirConf 2019, last year. So yeah, um, and, and it's been a long sitting branch. So I'm glad that that's going to get... Uh, uh, going to get tidied up, merged in, and yeah, looks really cool. De- definitely check out the little videos. They're they're pretty nice. Uh, we've got some links to them on the show notes.
0: Yeah, and we will be talking about that more in the future when it lands.
1: Hex.pm received a new security feature. Um, the feature allows um, for the responsible reporting of a security vulnerability. So um, if you're like me, you may have discovered a Hex package called MixAudit. It's not part of Mix proper. It's not part of Hex. It's just a it's just a package out there that somebody made. Uh, Mix audit actually uh, references a a database. I guess you can call it a database of of known issues with uh, packages that are out there. Um, for example, maybe Phoenix uh, older versions of Phoenix um, they've had CVEs reported in the past, uh, but that was uh, managed in an external package. Now Hex.pm has built-in support uh, into HEX proper, which is amazing. Um, So reports will be reviewed by a group of moderators to accept or reject the reports. Uh, And once the security report has been accepted, the project maintainer is notified. The, The disclosure moderators help coordinate between the reporter and the maintainer, and then once a fix is available... The report will be made public and affected packages are marked with the vulnerability. So that's how that workflow uh, works when there's a vulnerability discovered. So uh, you, uh, dear listener, as a as an Elixir user, the way that you would use this is by using, uh, you, you know, of course you do mix-depths.get, and then you can do mix-hex.audit. So that makes it really easy for you to use in continuous integration pipelines like I've done. I've have done this before. Um the feature is a, is a result uh I'm sorry. I'm I'm going to butcher your name and I'm I'm apologizing in advance. <laughs> it's Luis Soto Lopez. This feature is a result of his work uh who developed it as part of the Google Summer of Code uh 2020. So thank you for that work. Much appreciated. Um we got some more uh links in the show notes if you want to uh, check that out.
0: Um Rebar 3.14 was released. Rebar 3 is the official build tool for Erlang projects. Um, This release coincides with the relaunch of rebar3.org, which looks great and offers lots of documentation for getting started. There's a lot of work, a lot of changes that went into this release. And so you can find more information about it in the links that we'll drop into the show notes. And finally, Gleam version 0.11 was released. Gleam is a strongly typed language that also runs on the Beam. The release includes a number of improvements. So check out the blog post linked in the show notes for more detailed breakdown on what's new. That's it for the news. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Connor Rigby. He's a longtime contributor in in the Elixir ecosystem, and he is actively on the Nerves core team. Thank you for coming and joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Connor, maybe you could give us a little bit more background about yourself and kind of where you're working now and uh, what kind of projects you're working on.
2: I live in sunny Morro Bay, California, right off the Central Coast. Um, I've been working on Bluetooth a lot lately, actually, uh, as my current project. And aside from that, we're doing a little bit of Flutter work as well.
0: So I know you've also, uh, you'd spent several years, uh, working on FarmBot, uh, which is really cool. And that's where, when I first met you and talked with you, that's where you were, uh, contributing there. And then in about late 2019, there was a blog post announced that you joined Binary Noggin. Uh, so that's cool. Um, I'd just love to hear anything you want to say about that.
2: Yeah, um, I kind of got Farmbot to a point where I thought that they were in a place where they didn't need to have full time nurse work anymore. So they're they're still doing well using a lot of the stack that um, I helped put together. Uh, I joined Amos at Binary Noggin. Yeah, like you said, right at the beginning of this year, twenty twenty. We do consulting and kind of like greenfielding sometimes and a lot of uh, like project recovery as well. Right now, I'm working with Frank Hunlitz company, Smart Rent. um, Like I said, doing work with uh, Bluetooth specifically.
0: And one of the things you mentioned there was that you've been working with Flutter. So I just have to kind of give a little bit of background about my experience with Flutter. On some projects... I was exploring mobile applications and I, I tried React Native and I really wasn't a fan. I wanted to, And I didn't really want to have to write, you know, as writing it myself, I didn't really want to have to write, you know, an Android version and an iOS version in different languages. So you're like, you're always looking for like, how can I save myself the hassle? And that's when I kind of came across Google's technology called Flutter. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a short background as to what Flutter is.
2: Someone's gonna hate me for this, but I've heard a lot of people describe Flutter as React Native, but it doesn't suck. Um, I don't do <laughs> I don't do mobile apps at all, so I can't really speak to that. But I keep repeating it because I know it just gets people all <laughs> hot and bothered. So, <laughs> yeah, I've enjoyed it. I've not actually written a ton of Dart code or used Flutter itself a lot. I'm just using it because it seems like a decent alternative to something, say, scenic for NURBS. They make a pretty decent effort of making the Flutter engine kind of cross-compatible. So you can you can run it on embedded space, you can run it on Android, you can run it on iOS and on the web now. So the the goal there was being the company that I was working with is interested in. I believe it's like a front end for a thermostat, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and so it's just going to be on a small like three or four inch screen. And, you know, with that kind of stuff, a lot of times nerves devices will use like, say, a, an embedded web browser, but it just ends up being like pretty overkill for a really small app. So the goal with Flutter is to kind of have like a native UI library uh, that can run on, on an embedded hardware decently
0: so one of the things i just have to kind of say that i thought was really cool about flutter when i started learning about it is that like when you talk about react native i I think it's funny that you kind of bring up that little that quote idea i know i'm gonna cause some flame here too but you know when you're doing something like react native you're trying to and you're targeting both platforms you're having to implement the lowest common denominator of each like widget or function so you Otherwise, you end up still having to break out and have platform-specific code. And one of the things I thought was so interesting about Flutter is that it's using, at least on mobile, it's using like OpenGL hardware-accelerated graphics to do a drawing of everything. So it's not actually using the Android widgets or the iOS widgets. It's using its own internal widgets that just happen to render pixel-perfect.
2: Right. And, and, and I think that's kind of like my, the exciting part about it for me is because you don't get those weird things on like when you, you know, you build a cross platform app and it looks slightly different on both platforms, even though it might be the same code base underneath. I mm-hmm. think because they went the route of building like an, it, you know, it essentially works similarly to like a game engine where, you know, they're, they're doing it all in OpenGL and not relying on the underlying operating system which means that your apps look exactly the same and they all scale really well as well
0: so one of the things i thought was interesting about uh dart so dart is the language that you use to write uh flutter and i'm just trying to figure out like in my own head how do you separate dart like from like if you're writing an elixir kind of back end for this how do you separate dart from that like from the flutter uh, representation or are you like generating Dart code or like what's that like
2: so as of right now, and this is still early, so it, it may change in the future, but um, as of right now, what I've done is Flutter has this concept of embedding, which essentially means that you you bring your own compositor or you bring your own display. So rather than targeting a web browser or, you know, emitting an APK or a, I don't remember what iPhone's version of that is, you, it, it builds a native executable that you uh, statically link into your own rendering system. So basically it gives you like, or you give it a EGL or OpenGL context and it draws to it. So in that wiring, you have to kind of wire up the event loop for the Flutter engine. And inside of that, what I did was take the same kind of process that's, we use in a lot of the nerves libraries inside of a port where you can just speak Erlang terms back and forth. And Flutter has this concept of, oh, I don't remember the name of it. It's a, it's a plug-in system, essentially, where you can, you can do native code in the Flutter engine. So you have an API to Flutter code or to Dart code that goes through the Flutter engine and then essentially uses the port system to talk to Elixir. Erlang ports, that is. Um, and, and that's just like a convenient way. I, Frank Honlith and I, who is the other person kind of working on this, or at least he's getting it off the ground at least, we've been talking about how we want to do the communications and haven't really landed on anything in particular yet. Ultimately, I think it'll probably boil down to being like I described earlier uh, uh, a port with. Erlang terms being exchanged back and forth, because the Erlang term format is so simple to encode and decode that writing writing one in uh, Flutter would probably be fairly simple.
0: One of the things I just want to let you, dear listener, know, if you're not familiar with Connor Rigby, one of the things he's known for in the Elixir space is doing exploratory and unusual things with hardware that you would otherwise not expect to see. So this doesn't surprise me at all, um, and I'm just thrilled with it. Uh, but, uh, so I, I know, uh, as, as things go along further with you and Frank, uh, we'd love to hear how that goes and it'll let people know, uh, what awesome stuff you guys are working on.
2: Yeah. I think that's going to be a really fun project. Um, I think a lot of people are going to really get use out of it in the nerves space.
1: Flutter's popped up in a couple unexpected places and another place that's being used, not Fl- Flutter itself, but that graphics engine, Skia, which I guess is what, what's also rendering, uh, on, on Nerves. which you had there is also being used in LibreOffice. Which for folks that don't pay for Office, you know Microsoft Office, they're probably using LibreOffice or Google Docs or something like that. But LibreOffice just moved to uh, Google's rendering engine like this, OpenGL. Yeah,' it's a, it's really, yeah, a very unexpected, but um, very needed
0: to uh, on LibreOffice anyway.: All right, well, we'd love to jump into the main topic, uh, which is uh, around a blog post that you wrote, Connor, about making NIFs portable. And I think it's interesting because I think uh, as someone in the Elixir space, we hear about NIFs, we hear about ports, and you have experience with both. And I think it's interesting for people to get an understanding of kind of how they can think about NIFs and where they can use them and just any information and wisdom we can gain from your experience with what you've been doing with them. Maybe you can give just a little bit of background, this post that you were writing about and like kind of what the, the nature of the, the discussion was.
2: Uh, so Mike Bins wrote a blog post about controlling an Xbox Live Connect camera uh via Elixir and he used he used a NIF to communicate with it as well. And so a little bit of a backstory is I did this project a while back. I don't remember what I was using it for, but I used the Connect camera for something, and I never published it because I didn't find it that particularly interesting. Like what I had done wasn't really worth sharing. And then Mike Bins actually brought it to a point where it was actually like, interesting to look at and so after after looking at it, i was like oh man i, I have a bit of experience with this i'm super excited to look at it again I, I have this hacked up xbox connect uh thing because like it doesn't have a usb port on it from when like the original ones i only have an original one and so i like locked the end off and soldered on a real usb connector and uh, the whole nine yards and anyways so i i was like super excited to try it out and i you know do mix compile and it just like starts complaining about all kinds of Mac OS specific stuff. And, you know, I, I go, I dig into it and like, Oh, I, I know how to fix this. Hold on. And as I was doing, it, it's like, I feel like I'm doing this a lot and maybe, maybe this is like worth it to the community to share this. And it doesn't like, I kind of focused on NIFs on the blog post, but it doesn't really only apply to NIFs. It's kind of anything where you're needing to write native code. So a port or I guess drivers, if that's still a thing i don't think the elixir community uses port drivers very often or whatever but I- anything where you're reaching out to like c or c plus there's like a set of things that it seems like not a lot of people are aware of i was just trying to kind of explain that a little bit so next time i find a cool project on github i i don't have to go modifying it so it can run on my machine
0: my primary development machine is linux uh, so you know I do know I've been through that, like even in the Ruby kind of community, you know, but what's interesting is like, it's good to be aware of this, because uh, like, if you're in nerves, you're you're not you're running it on a, a Linux kernel. And if you're running it on the cloud, you know, it's probably on a Linux machine. So you kind of want to be aware of these things, just from the beginning about some good patterns that you can use to avoid some of those headaches.
2: Right. And I mean, when it when your library like goes into production and I will say that uh, I don't really expect Mike to be putting his connect library in production anywhere. Microsoft will let you do it, but uh, you got to sign a bunch of waivers and stuff. So so for a little bit of a little bit more backstory, his his library uses open or free is what it's called, which is a free and open source implementation of their driver of microsoft proprietary driver so legally i don't know how viable it is to put it into production either way when it went into production it would have gone on a linux machine almost certainly and he would have found these things out inevitably at some point but i just feel like it's something that we can you know we can get you thinking about it before you get there
1: so I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I'm curious to how your blog post uh, compares to something like Rustler for the Rust side. Does Rustler take care of this cross-platform compilation stuff, or is it more just like the workflow to compile it at all?
2: So Rust does, Rustler does not, and I've been promising the maintainers of Rustler that I would help them do this for like three years, and I just, I haven't got to it yet, um,
1: Sorry, I brought it up.
2: <laughs> no, it's a, it's okay. I know, like Sonny Scroggins and and oh, I don't remember the 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 main guy who just created Rustler, but they're very smart guys, and it's it's a really cool project. I don't personally dig Rust all that much. Just I I haven't found myself to need it very much, but um, I'm glad that it exists, and I'm glad that a lot of people are reaching to use it. But that is like kind of been an outstanding issue with nerves is. Uh, Rustler doesn't work out of the box on it because of the lack of basically what I wrote this blog post about. (laughs) And it's not it's not a particularly difficult fix. It's just one of those ones where someone who knows this stuff needs to go in and help out, especially because like Rust does a little bit of handholding for you until you tell it not to. And once you tell it not to, I found that it was hard to understand how to tell it to do the things that like regular GNU make does out of the box. And, and that's just because I haven't taken the time to learn how Rust does it. I'm sure it would be like a 45-minute endeavor. I just haven't got to it.
1: So at the risk of, of looking like a complete noob here, just looking through some of the, some of the examples you have on your, your posts, is it, is it right to, to say that most of the checks here are just saying, hey, if you're on Linux, link these libraries differently? And if you're on Mac link those different libraries
2: yeah essentially that's all it is is just max version of gcc or it, i mean i guess it wouldn't be gcc max ver- max c compiler has different arguments than um say gcc does and so if you like in the nerves community we use gcc it's the most common it's the most usable but there are other C compilers, you know, like CMake is one that I've been working with a lot, which has been kind of a, a hurdle, especially like like we were talking about Flutter earlier. Um, they use CMake and it's just kind of a nightmare for nerves because of the differences between CMake and GCC. But yeah, essentially the Mac OS has a couple. For NIFs specifically, they make it particularly difficult um, because to create a shared library on Mac is a completely different set of arguments to the c compiler or the linker i guess is really the important one i'm kind of being bad here because i made this big stink about making it portable to linux and then i said making it portable and then in parentheses i should have said only to linux because i have no idea how to make stuff compile from windows (laughs) (laughs) i just expect that anyone that uses windows professionally uses wsl at this point anyways and they just have a linux environment
1: Yeah, the closest I've gotten to uh, specifying like compiler flags is is when I have to install an old version of Ruby and they need like an old version of OpenSSL or something like that. And between Linux and and Mac, they're in different places or brew installed, that kind of stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, because I'd really love to dive into this stuff some more. But unfortunately, that's the only that's the closest I've gotten to uh, having to mess with compiler flags like this.
2: Luckily, once you get into Elixir land, this kind of thing is just not a non-issue, except for when you're doing, you know, the weird stuff, like trying to talk to a five, 10 year old camera or whatever.
0: So Connor, one of the things I'd love to kind of get an insight from from you is like, you're talking about, you know, maybe using ports uh, for the Flutter thing and maybe using, and then you're using NIFs and other places. Do you have a rule of thumb of when you decide which approach to use?
2: Uh, yeah, my rule of thumb is if it's for me and not a professional project, I use a NIF because the API is way easier. If someone else is going to be using it, I'll usually write a port. Um, mm-hmm. NIFs are cool, and, like, the speed thing is, like, cool, I guess. I don't know. I've never really I, – I won't say I never have, but there are very few things where I've needed the speed from a NIF. The interface is just way easier to use, in my opinion. Ports, you have to do all kinds of stuff with, like – standard in and standard out or you have to like you have to configure the port correctly so like whatever your your it and in ports don't have to be c code i guess that's the other uh, benefit for them they can be any uh you know any external process but you have to make sure to configure the the where standard in and standard out are correct uh from the elixir slash erlang side and then you have to deal with encoding and decoding whatever data you're transporting back and forth so i always use erlang term format because you know just erlang.term to binary and then binary to term when it comes back is really easy on the elixir side but actually getting that data in c is kind of tedious and annoying and i don't know um my rule of thumb is if i'm worried about it crashing the vm i'll probably use a port so i've been working with like uh, libusb lately Uh, which is a usb library for we're we're writing a bluetooth library and part of the bluetooth spec is uh based in usb and so i just have like kind of mixed feelings overall about usb and i don't really trust it particularly especially you know you got stuff like people yanking their usb sticks out of their computer and stuff like that and it's just like that's the type of thing where like i'm not going to Trust some ex like libusb is fully vetted and they're a great library and everything, but it's just the nature of it. Like something's gonna crash and it's gonna be a nightmare. It's gonna crash the entire VM. So we did that one in a port, and it just makes it way easier.
1: Yeah, I remember when I was young,
0: my school teacher gave me a USB thumb drive to go grab something off of another computer. So I dragged the file onto the USB. And as soon as it's done, I just yanked the USB out of the computer. Didn't even know to eject it. (laughs) Completely nuked his thumb drive.
2: (laughs) I still do it. Um, I just, I'm relentless. I do not care about people telling me to eject their USB drives. Like maybe just be ready to accept that your USB drive is disposable. Like people storing ridiculous amounts of data on USB drives, like worried about them crashing. Like that's not what this is for. This is for moving a file from one computer to another. I kind of treat my computers poorly, I guess, in that respect, or or my electronics and stuff. Like, I don't go unmounting anything. Like, I I just trust that developers were assuming that I was going to yank this USB stick out of this computer, and and they're ready to handle that.
1: <laughs> I I've never actually heard of a USB stick being nuked because of that. I thought that was just like a an urban myth. <laughs>
2: I think it used to happen on older file systems. Like FAT32 is really not super great about like, being interrupted in the middle of a write. Gotcha. It can get corrupted pretty easily. But that's like nice. modern, like EXFAT and NTFS on Windows, like you, can, you can pull those out whenever you want. and It'll almost always fix it. You may lose a file, but it won't lose the whole thing.
1: So, so are you saying that the progress bar of the file copying is, is still a lie? Like even after the file has been copied, there's there still writing that's going on?
2: Oh, if you're on Linux, yes. I don't know about Windows specifically. I don't use it enough to say, it, but you, every time I copy, I you know I, I don't use a, a file explorer very often. I just use like CP or whatever to copy my files. And uh, it's just CP, my file, my destination, colon, and then sync. Because otherwise I'll yank that USB drive out and it won't have actually written it to the to the device.
0: Yeah, it'll often buffer up the changes until there's like a, expecting maybe there's some more changes or a a time kind of elapses and then it flushes it.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think it depends on the file system and everything.
0: So I did have a question about NIFs. Uh, When I started kind of thinking about this and reading your article, it made me think like, I don't have a whole lot of practical experience where I've written a lot of NIFs NIFs or anything like that. But I was also thinking about NERVs where you're targeting different hardware devices and, you know, like a BeagleBone versus a Raspberry Pi versus, you know, some other type of custom hardware. Is there any kind of consideration that's needed to be made when writing a NIF and you're targeting different hardware?
2: Kind of. It depends on the hardware. For the most part, anything in NURBS, we try to use whatever Linux API is there, which has all the platform dependent code like way up in the kernel that we don't have to worry about. Occasionally, there's stuff that we have to worry about target specific code. For example, also, wait, before I go on this, I'm going to go on a quick tangent. We actually don't use NIFs in nerves, very often. I just spent, like, yesterday NERVS showed up on Hacker News, and I made my first Hacker News post ever in my life. And it was just to respond to some guy that was like, oh, NERVS is so unreliable. You know, all they do is wrap a bunch of code in NIFs, and you're just waiting for it to crash the VM. And I was like, no, we don't. One. Two, can you maybe do a bit of research before you, like, I don't know. That, that was my first experience with Hacker News, and it was not a great one. Um, so... To any Hacker News people out there, we don't use NIFs for anything in NERVs, Actually, we we use a couple ports for the networking library, but for the most part, like if you have a NIF in your project, you brought it on yourself. You know. End rant there, anyways. <laughs> so for target specific code, like specifically for Flutter, um, the Raspberry Pi in particular has a weird system for using their graphics driver. They have a 3D accelerated graphics chip on the silicone, but they don't, like they went their own route instead of making it, instead of using the Linux APIs that are available to you, like the DRM drivers and things like that, they they went their own route, which means anything that wants to use the 3D accelerator has to write custom C code for it or hope that someone else already did it for you. And like, for example, FFmpeg, which is like a media encoder, decoder, it does all kinds of stuff. They have a plugin for the Raspberry Pi's OMX chip, so does GStreamer, and I think there are patches to make like Chromium work with it and stuff like that as well. So anyways, that that would be like an example of target specific code that you would have to write. And when using it, like, for example, Scenic is a decent example where we had to help Boyd write a a driver for using that, using the platform-specific code. And then, you know, the the desktop version of Scenic uses um, a different driver. And so essentially how I handle it or how I like to handle it is to have as little in C as possible or as little in native code and just have different Elixir packages for particular implementations using some sort of, like behavior or contract of sorts. Um, that way you get like, you don't have to do like in your C code, be checking what platform you're on and what kind of things are available. If you just like make it so you have like, say the display driver concept, and then there's like an implementation of that driver, you're going to have one for Raspberry Pi, one for drawing to EGL, etc. That's how I like to do it at least.
0: That's cool. I did not realize that Nerves uh had no Im- NIF implementations in it. I think that's really interesting to know. Uh, I was just wondering if you if there's any particular resources you point other people to when they need to bring in ports or something like that. Like here is a good example of where you can go to get a like for building your own ports implementation. Or if there's any particular libraries that you recommend, because I know there are several.
2: For ports, I do git clone, elixir circuits, uh uart for ports that's just the canonical one that i base all of my ports off of it's small enough to where i can rip everything out of it really quickly and i've done it enough times to where like i'm it's basically muscle memory at this point unfortunately writing ports and nifs uh there's no real way to get around it if you're using c there's a ridiculous amount of boilerplate other than like wrapping it like the membrane guys they've wrapped the apis to make it so there's not as much boilerplate but unless you're doing that which i don't find particularly useful because you're just replacing the official erlang boilerplate with some other library's boilerplate so it ends up being the same really to me but either way there is a lot of boilerplate and so getting set up is kind of like the biggest hurdle in my opinion and Maybe this isn't like a common thing for people to do, but I just go and download an existing package and rip all of that package apart until I get just the bare minimum of the stuff I need. You know, you can build it from scratch, but you're going to end up with the same thing and it takes way longer. So nice the too. official Erlang documentation also has docs on getting started, um, but it's Erlang specific. It doesn't have anything specific about how to compile your C code, it just says, here's the C code, uh, which I don't find particularly useful, especially when you're writing Elixir. Like If if you're newish to Elixir and you need a, a native library, then reading Erlang documentation is probably not going to be the easiest for you. However, the Erlang documentation for NIFs is really good, actually, if you can find it, because it seems to move around a lot. It doesn't. It's just I can't ever find it. For some reason, I need to just bookmark it. But They have a a reference of all the functions and writing functional C is kind of weird because, you you know, Erlang itself is functional. So you have to still write it pretty functionally, but it is weird. And the NIF API documentation is pretty good about telling you how to do stuff. And really, like, it's pretty hard to mess it up unless you try pretty hard.
1: (laughs) This is a little bit off topic, but. I know that OTP 23 now has the shared uh, documentation chunks with Erlang, and we can pull it out now in IEX. I don't remember if they said anything about like publishing Erlang documentation with Xdocs, though. Not that that would, you know, change the words and readability of the documentation. But as far as like finding it, you know, the the search function in there, I wonder if that's uh, if that was planned at all
2: yeah that would be interesting interesting to see um, yeah. I know searching the Erlang documentation is not particularly a, a it's not a very fun exercise like once you know where something is, you need to like just like save that in your brain because it's going to be impossible <laughs> to find it again I know there there's somewhere there's a document that describes how to use e i or Erl interface it's it's a a um, c library that ships with erlang for encoding and decoding erlang terms in c and somewhere there's documentation on using it but i don't know where it is and so my go-to is again just to download an existing nurse project and take the functions that i need out of it because it's easier than trying to search the erlang documentation
1: well that now now maybe you can just do otp 23 iex it up and just do h you know yeah <laughs>
2: One of the annoying things is there's no module associated with it. So you can't just like, like anything that's in an OTP app, you know, you can just go to the man page and go to the OTP app. But if something like they have this subheader of like Erlang.org slash doc slash tutorial and everything in there just seems like an idea bin that like there's a lot of really useful and really important information in there, but it's searchability is pretty mediocre.
0: So Connor I do uh, have a question for you. So like imagine that I'm an elixir developer who doesn't have much practical working experience with C. And I feel like I need a nif for you know I need to interface with some hardware and maybe that's the the route I've chosen to go. So what would you recommend for me?
2: I don't know are you on the rust bandwagon or not?
0: What if I if I'm not opposed to it, right?
2: Like I have a hard time saying this because I don't use Rust and I, I, I don't like recommending things that I don't use, but I feel like people should give Rust a shot. Maybe it might be kind of annoying if you're if you're trying to target hardware like on nerves because of the outstanding issue of it not um working out of the box, that might be kind of a deterrence. But I feel like if someone was really like interested in making this happen they would have already and so i i don't get the feeling that it doesn't exist for lack of people wanting it i just don't think anyone wants or need it right now so i would i would say that probably i don't know i have a hard time saying like recommending people to look at rust but i i guess look at rust c is kind of cumbersome and unpleasant to someone who doesn't already know it or at least have somewhat of a working knowledge and i and Just in 2020, I have such a hard time recommending people spend time learning. C. it's just so niche for the most part that like you almost never need it in most modern like web development situations. So Rust is probably a good one. I think you can also write NIFs. I don't think anyone's done this yet, but I'm fairly certain that you could use Go without too much work. I think you would have to write a little bit of wrapping of boilerplate. I think that it would be pretty trivial to set up other than, of course, wrapping the C functions, the um, the C API. And that might be another decent route. I don't know that anyone has done it, but I think it's a viable solution. I also recommend it. Like, I think what I would officially recommend to someone asking me like what they should do to interface with native code is try and see if there's a Python library for the thing that you want to use and then wrap that in a port. I don't think I actually did a blog post on this. Maybe it's in progress and I haven't finished it yet, but there's, I've I've pushed a couple examples on my GitHub of how to use Python as a port. I think that's a, a pretty viable option if like just to get something up and running to see what's required. Um, because there is already an existing Erlang term format library for Erlang. So you can pretty much just do port open with the path to your Python script and it just automatically speaks Erlang. And it's pretty like, that's probably the path of least resistance to get out of Erlang into something else. And you still get native Erlang terms. Uh, You still get the reliability of a port compared to a NIF. And I I think that would be how i how i would suggest people get started for stuff just because it's the most easy conceptually.
0: Yeah, um so there's this one library I just want to mention. It's quite a bit older now. It's called Earlport. You know, it has Earlport 1.0 alpha from 2015, but it actually works. So like I use actually a a community fork of it, uh, but I've used that for talking to Ruby and it also has a Python implementation. And I think something like that, I I was just glad to hear you say Python because I think a lot of the reasons people are reaching for ports or NIFs is because maybe they have an existing library or application or service or something that they want to interface with. And Python is a, a common one, I think, because maybe especially if you're doing the embedded space, right? Where it's like I have uh a NERVS device that has a camera and I want to do some uh image recognition. And, you know, I there's probably A Python library out there that's going to do that it's going to identify and block off people and pet you know dogs and cars and and help me like label things so I can even know like is this frame of video interesting should I do something with it you know so then you're interfacing with something like Python
2: yeah I think that's um, a really good place to reach we've been kind of trying to like make Nerves seem more approachable in such a way where like we don't bundle Python by default in in our our upstream systems just because it is rather bloaty it's pretty huge like if you if you enable Python on a system your system will go from like your your end firmware bundle and in, in Nerves will go from like 10 megs to like 100 megs it's a big hammer if you want to use it but it also like if you're in like, especially if you're in like the R and D stage and like, you don't want to spend a bunch of time learning some protocol to, you know, get something wired up and see, like, you know, you might need that in the final implementation, but for, you know, just getting something up and running, like getting a proof of concept, you can get something whipped up in Python in you know, 10, 15 minutes and then just deploy it onto your hardware. And now you have something working and stuff like Earlport, which is cool. You brought that up. I I haven't thought of that in, probably at least two, three years since when I first saw it. And uh, that's probably, if it still works, then that's probably a really good way of getting started.
0: Well, Connor, I think we've covered just about everything we had to to bring you on for. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about?
2: I want to plug Membrane, actually. I've been like kind of silently plugging it for the last couple of weeks. I I did a project with uh, some AI and video recognition and in doing that, we used uh, kind of like the canonical way to do AI right now is to use like Tensorflow or whatever which is usually Python based and rather than like they have a C++ API but it's not very well documented and it's kind of hard to use so I just implemented it in Python and I was able to get that wired up to uh, um, into elixir and that was a really fun project but to actually orchestrate the entire system, I used membrane, which is like a multimedia processing framework that's it was announced, I think, at ElixirConf 2018. It kind of went over my head at the time. I didn't really quite understand what the goal of it was. But after, like, once I needed it, I found it. and I was like, this is exactly what I needed. I was able to build, like, essentially a Twitch clone in the better part of an afternoon using Membrane. And it was a really fun experience. If, if anyone's interested in doing, like, uh, video or multimedia processing, I want to give them a shout out tell them to tell everyone to go look at them because it's a really fun project and I don't think enough people are talking about it as of right now.
0: So they describe it as an easy to use abstraction layer for assembling mostly server side applications which consume, process or produce multimedia streams and it's written in elixir and c. That sounds like a great case for yeah, it's like if you're doing anything that you want to be processing server side multimedia either processing or producing that that would be very interesting
2: yeah it kind of to me felt almost like nerves but for multimedia they they don't give you uh, you know it doesn't do everything for you it's not like some black magic but it gives you all the tools you need to get what you want done pretty quickly and their documentation is actually pretty good for how new of a project it is and for how little people have used it as of yet I was able to get mostly up and running in the better part of a week learning how all of the pieces work together. And then I would say MVP in maybe two, three weeks. So I was really happy with my experience using it and and I hope other people are as well. I've been contributing a little bit back to them for uh, several various like holes that I found in it. And I think most of that is merged now. So I, I would say tell everyone to give them a try if you want to process some video or something.
0: That's interesting. Is there any any little uh projects that you'd want to hint at as to why you would be playing with uh cool tech like that?
2: I don't think I'm allowed to talk too much about that one, but um I do have I do have another one that I set up. It's actually up and running and I tweeted about it a while back, but uh didn't give it a ton of uh airtime. I've got a, I just bought a 3D printer not that long ago. And uh, there's a project called Octopi, I believe is what it's called. It like manages your 3D printer. Uh, You can do, like you can have it like the, the the feature that I wanted out of it is you could stream to Twitch TV to monitor your 3D printer. And I just thought that was kind of like a lame way to monitor your 3D printer. So obviously I, uh, I built a Twitch TV clone, Specifically for <laughs> 3D printers, and then use the Raspberry Pi with a. I used a Raspberry Pi and a Raspberry Pi's or the Raspberry Pi Zero camera, which is different than the regular Raspberry Pi camera for whatever reason. And I, I just pointed it directly at my my 3D printer, and I, I had it just streaming HD video to to an app, a Phoenix app that I made that uses Membrane on the back end to kind of process that, and then used what's the new thing called phoenix live view to render the video and got pretty close to real time um it's like within three to five seconds of latency which you know is pretty weird like when you're in the same house as your thing printing but now i can be anywhere in the world and check on my 3d printer that's pretty cool it was also kind of like a fun um full-stack Elixir experience, right? Like I used Nerves and stuff on the Raspberry Pi and then Phoenix on the back end. And so there's there's very little leaving the Elixir community. And that's just like a really fun way to build hardware apps, in my opinion. I, I really like the community that we've built here and being able to do such a thing. You know, you have Nerves for all your low-level stuff and, you know, having a ton of devices all connected to one Phoenix back end. It just like everything kind of fits together and it feels really nice.
0: That's awesome. Well, Connor, that's about all the time we have for today. Uh, if people want to reach you online or follow you and what you're doing, uh, where should they go to do that?
2: I'm um, press Y for Pi on Twitter and Connor Rigby on GitHub. If you want to reach me otherwise, you will have a pretty hard time. <laughs>
0: well, thank you for coming on, Connor, and taking the time to to share with us what you're working on and some of these new interesting uh, projects. And we look forward to seeing some of the other stuff that comes out from this. And, uh, so thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.